I'm sorry, the uh, Red Sea. I knew about the wilderness wanderings, the tabernacle. I, mean, I knew about these things, but I didn't really understand them. I, I didn't understand how significant th- these events were in God's plan of redemption. I, I didn't recognize how, how all of these events pointed to the, the, the person, the promises, and the plans of God. And I certainly didn't understand how these people, these rebellious, wondering, grumbling, sometimes faithful, sometimes faithless people were a picture of me and of you. And because of that, the book of Exodus had very little impact in my life, even though I could have maybe won a trivia game about it, right? I could have given the, the answers of all that happened, but I did not understand the significance. So maybe that's why I want to preach through Exodus so badly, because maybe I don't want you uh, to, to make the same mistake uh, that I walked in for so long. I want God's word all of it, and especially this book of Exodus right now, to have its maximum impact on our lives. Before we go, even go any further, stepping into this book of Exodus, let, let's turn to God in prayer, because we're, we're going to need his help. Father God, we know that there are amazing, life-changing realities in the book of Exodus. But God, we also recognize that without you, we can do nothing of spiritual significance. Without you, we can't discern spiritual truths. We can't see these life-giving promises and patterns and realities, God. We can't see your glory. And so, God, we, we come to you asking that you would, by your Spirit, Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word. Incline our ears to be attentive to what you say. And God, please move our hearts to not only see, to not only hear, but to love and trust and obey what you teach us, God. God, I pray all this in the name of Jesus, our one and only Savior, our guide. Amen. The book of Exodus is containing within it the events that were most significant in God's redemptive plan up until the cross of Jesus Christ. So, so that is for uh, about 2,000 years, what happened in the book of Exodus was the most significant set of events in, in the Jewish religion. This is what they looked back to. This is what they clung to. This is what gave them uh, encouragement. This is what gave them hope, what stirred their faith. The most significant Redemptive events occur in the book of Exodus up until the cross of Jesus Christ. This is an incredibly important book that largely shapes the rest of the Bible. 
And so we need to really study this book. We, we need to really give ourselves to it because if God's word, the, the word which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, if, if it is the thing that encourages us, encourages us, rebukes us, sanctifies us, we need to understand what God has for us in this book of Exodus that was so significant and is so significant. But I want to give you, as we begin this study, two very important tools that we're going to carry with us through the rest of this study of the book of Exodus, through grids through which we will read and understand what God has for us. One of these uh, tools is going to be drawn straight from our text itself, from Exodus 1, and the other is going to be drawn from the rest of the Bible. That is, it's going to show us what, you know, what the rest of the Bible says about the book of Exodus. So here are the tools I, I want to give you. This is point one in your outline if you're following along. The book of Exodus is a genuinely historical and deeply symbolic book. It's a genuinely historical and deeply symbolic book. The, the book of Exodus is not meant to be read as, as a fairy tale as a, a spiritual parable or, or some sort of an allegory. What we, we're going to study is genuine historical record of, of events that really happened at a particular time to a particular people in a particular place. This is history, and, and we, we have to keep that in mind as we read it. But on the other hand, the book of Exodus is not meant to be read as merely history as though it's only something that happened in the past. It's not a list of facts, names, and dates. It also has deep spiritual symbolic significance. And the way that that works together, the, the historicity and the, the symbolism of Exodus is that the God who presides over and rules history guided these events so that it would weave into history these symbols. This is incredible, and so we, we can't miss either of these things. These are a part of God's redemptive plan, but there is also deep symbolism embedded in the book of Exodus. But I want to show you these things. Uh, first, I'll show you from the text how this is genuinely historical. Verses 1 through 5, if you want to follow along in your Bible or um, up on the screen, it says this. This is how the book of Exodus begins. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now that's an interesting way to start a story. I mean, how can Moses, the, the human author of the book of Exodus, just start this book with a, a random list of names? He doesn't give any background. He doesn't give any explanation for who these people are or, or for why they're in Egypt, why they came down, it says, 
That is an interesting way to start a book. But, but here's the thing I, I want you to recognize, and what, what uh, Moses is doing here is he is connecting it to Genesis. By the way, in the Hebrew, this actually starts with the word now. Now, um, now these are the names. That, that's a continuation word. But what, what he's doing is, is these are people that he has explained who they are. These are people that he's given a background. He, he did show how these people came to Egypt, and that is called the book of Genesis. Genesis is, of course, uh, a historical book that starts at the beginning of creation. And what you can see through the book of Genesis is that there is a genealogy that traces all the way from chapter 4, you could say, begins the, the genealogy after Adam and Eve. And then it traces all the way to chapter 35 is where we are introduced to all 12 of these people and their father, Jacob. They're, they're all present and accounted for by chapter 35 of Genesis. Genesis is, is 50 chapters long. But we, we have these people, and even the next 15 chapters of Genesis is tracing how these 12 sons and their father ended up in Egypt. We remember that Joseph, uh, the second youngest son of Jacob, was sold into slavery by, uh, by his brothers. You guys remember that? They, they were jealous of him. And so they sold him into slavery in Egypt, but God had a bigger purpose in, selling, in having Joseph uh, go down to Egypt. He serves a master for a while, but then he ends up in prison. But before you know it, which for him was a very long time, by the way, before you know it, by our reading, he's standing in the king's court. He interprets uh, the, the dream of Pharaoh, and he tells him there's going to be seven years of famine and seven, year, sorry, seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine all over the land. And so he not only interprets the dream, but he says, here's what we need to do. During these seven years of plenty, we need to be storing up grains, build storehouses, store up the grains, the grain and put someone over all that so they can divvy it out when the famine happens. And Pharaoh says, I love it. And I love you, Joseph. You will be that man. You are second in command now over Egypt. Make this happen. And, and it all goes exactly as Joseph said it would. There were seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And in, in a very real sense, uh, Joseph was the savior of the people of Egypt. They would have perished. Most of them would have perished in this famine had it not been for his interpreting of these dreams, uh, this dream and the, the advice that he gave. But after this happens, like during the famine, uh, again, long story short, Joseph, by Pharaoh's uh, command or whatever, uh, brings his family down. So Jacob and the other 11 sons come to live in the land of Egypt to, you know, make it through this famine. And so this, this is not just a, a random group of people with no explanation, no background. These are people that, that are deeply rooted in history. I mean, you can literally trace their genealogy from the very first people all the way to uh, the, the ones listed here in Exodus. And again, that's very important because the story doesn't end with Exodus. It's interesting because 
Exodus picks up with where Genesis left off, but Exodus doesn't finish the story. When, when you get to the end of Exodus, spoiler alert, um, you will find them in the wilderness. Um, the, the tabernacle will be built, but they're, they're still very much in a very long way uh, from the promised land. And so even, even this book of Exodus isn't a self-contained um, narrative of, of these events. It, it is feeding into the rest of redemptive history and it is so important it's so important that we see how these events connect to the rest of history so we must read this as history but on the other hand as as i've said the book of exodus was was meant to take a, a primary place in god's people's lives these events were meant to impact them for thousands of years to come because it was the most significant historical event up until the cross historical redemptive event this we know because all through the rest of the old testament they will continually point back to what was said uh, here in exodus But instead of just reading Exodus as history, they will see what happened in Exodus as a symbol for what is going on with them right there. Just uh, for instance, when they're in exile, they've been taken from the promised land to exile much, much, much later. And they look back to the Exodus for this is our God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Surely we can trust him to to take us back. To the promised land. I mean, they, they just continually used the book of Exodus, and even God inspired them to do this. Uh, God, God would Himself say, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Trust me, obey me. This book of Exodus, we know, has that symbolic meaning because the Old Testament tells us that it is filled with symbolic meaning, that it was to carry on through the generations. In addition, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles both refer back to the Exodus many, many times. But they do it slightly different uh, than the Old Testament prophets did. Rather than only pointing back to the Exodus events for how God would work, they pointed to the Exodus events for how God was working. (laughs) Jesus Uh, As we'll see going through this series, Jesus will will show them, hey, remember Moses? That was about me. Hey, remember the manna out in the wilderness? Hey, I'm the bread of life. I mean, it, it will just go on and on. And so what we'll see as we go through the book of Exodus are what are called types and uh, patterns. A type is, um, I would say this is explicit in the Bible. You want to know for a type that the Bible says, hey, this is a type. This is people or events that point to a greater reality. And so, as I just mentioned, Moses was a type of Christ. The the river uh, crossing of, of the Red Sea was a type. And, and many more, the, the wilderness wanderings, uh, we're, we're a type. The tabernacle will be a type. 
we'll, we'll see. And the Bible explicitly tells us, hey, remember what happened back in the Exodus? That was actually pointing to this, to this person, to this event, to this group of people. But in addition to types, there are also going to be patterns. So these are things that the Bible may not explicitly say, hey, this is what was going on in Exodus. But the pattern is so prevalent and reoccurring that, that it shows that it's emphasizing and explaining the way God works. That's what a pattern is. So for instance, God's faithfulness to his promises in Exodus is a pattern that you will see woven through the rest of scripture. Scripture, God's justice in the plagues and his uh, wrath on Egypt is a pattern that will continue through the Bible. It will reappear over and over. God leading Israel through the wilderness by this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night is a pattern. The fluctuating faithfulness of Israel, God's chosen people, is a pattern. And so we'll see all these patterns and we will know that they are significant if we are familiar with all of God's word. Because we'd say, man, that sounds a lot like this because it happens here and it happens here and it happens here. This must be something God wants us to pay attention to. And the reason that it's significant to pay attention to patterns is we can know what to expect. We can know what kind of God we worship and how he will respond and react. We can know what kind of people we are, what we're up against, the fight we will have to fight. We can know many things through the patterns and the types that God gives us. And so if we were to merely take uh, the book of Exodus as a historical narrative of a list of facts, we would miss so much of what God has for us. He has for, again, millennia used this ex the Exodus events in the lives of his people to strengthen them, to give them hope, to give them greater faith and worship of him. And so it should be for us. The book of Exodus should lead us to greater worship of God, to greater joy in our salvation and greater obedience to God. That is what the book of Exodus should do. It is historical, but it is symbolic and it does have significance for us today. We see that right there at the beginning, <laughs> this list of random names. No, 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 rooted in history. But we'll see throughout the rest of the Bible, this was pointing to a greater reality. We have to read it that way. Okay, now that we better know how to read the book of Exodus, I want us to, to see a little bit better what's going on here. Because again, I've told you, okay, you can trace the genealogy of these random people still. You can trace that in Genesis. But, but what, what's so significant about them? Why, why is Moses writing about them? Why are we going to see God act on their behalf? They are, number two, a people of promise. They are a people of promise. This is going to be very, very important for our study to understand that these are a people of promise. They're not just a random people. They, were, they are a particular people, a people of promise. Um, in our last point, looking at the historicity of Exodus, we, we trace the genealogy 
um, up to th these 12 individuals and, and their father. So I guess these 13 individuals. But what I didn't tell you is that you can also trace not only their lineage, but the pathway of God's promise up to these individuals. God made a promise to sinful mankind, hopeless mankind, and you can trace that promise all the way to uh, Jacob and his 12 sons. I, I want to show you that quickly because some of us may, may not recognize this. Um, you have at the, the beginning of Genesis, of course, chapter 1 is the uh, six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rests. Chapter 2 zooms in on the creation of mankind, and it shows the marriage of, of Adam and Eve and God uh, giving them a purpose and, and fellowshipping with them. And they are literally in uh, paradise. That's a meaning of the word uh, Eden. The Garden of Eden is the Garden of Paradise where they dwell with God, where, where they have everything to eat and drink, and it's just beautiful and wonderful. But then you turn to chapter 3, and things go south. God gave them one rule, <laughs> one way to show that God is supreme, that God is the, the authority, that God is to be served and loved above all else. One rule, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, that seems easy enough. You're in paradise, fellowship with God. You have purpose, you have meaning, you have a partner. But we know Eve took, she listened to Satan rather than God. Then she shared some with Adam. And this is what we call the fall. And the fall, uh, it, it means that we, humanity, fell into sin. Not that we tripped into it, but that we fell from our exalted place. This is uh, also called the curse <laughs> that, yes, you will one day die. And oh, by the way, until you die, things will be very, very difficult for you. Relationships, childbearing, work. But God, mixed into that curse, gave a promise. This is Genesis 3.15 and he's actually here speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to uh, Satan. God says this, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So you notice the, the flow of, of that, that passage. It, it goes from this enmity between uh, the woman and, and Satan, but then it spreads to Satan's offspring and her offspring, but then it singles down to a he. And this he would bruise the head of Satan. We, we will see later in scripture with that what this is saying is that a savior will come and he will crush Satan. He will deal a deadly blow, but not only to Satan, but to all that he stands for, including the corruption of mankind and the, the spoiling of our relationship with God. That's what's being pointed to. This is a promise. This is the first promise. This is the first gospel, first good news in the Bible, this message of promise to fallen mankind. But this did not happen immediately. 
We know that Adam and Eve uh, had Seth. That, by the way, is only after Cain kills Abel. But uh, the, the Adam and Eve had Seth. And then, again, to not go too, too in-depth here, you can trace this promise to Noah. Then you can trace it to Shem. And then, again, skipping a bunch of generations that are shown in, in Genesis, we come to chapter 12 of Genesis where God renews and expands his promise to a man named Abram, or we know him generally as Abraham. So God renews. He, he points back to this Genesis 3.15 promise, but he also expands it. He gives him more promises showing how this promise of a Savior will be fulfilled. I'll give you just kind of bullet point style what, what this, these promises included. God said that he would make of Abraham a great nation. A great nation. That means he would multiply him greatly. This would be a great and strong nation. He said that he would give him a land, specifically the land of Canaan, which was a wonderful land. Then God said that they, God would give them a blessing. He says, I will bless you. Then he says that they will have divine protection. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you. I will curse. That's divine protection. And fifth, this is the one that points back to Genesis 3.15. A war, from Abraham, from this nation, would come a worldwide redemptive blessing. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Later in Genesis, in Genesis it says, in you, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And again, the, the Bible interprets these things as pointing to Christ Jesus, the ultimate blessing, the sacrifice for our sins, the substitution for the wrath we deserve, our powerful Savior who overcomes Satan's sin and death. But we don't, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're only in the book of Exodus, so I'm, I'm going too far forward, but I'm showing you where this fits in. They are a people of promise. So Abraham receives this promise. Then this promise is passed on to Isaac, and then God passes it on to Jacob, and then it's passed on to his 12 sons that are listed there that we read uh, at the beginning, these, these 12 sons. God is going to fulfill his great promise through these people. Th this is incredibly important. God, who is utterly faithful, who is utterly unshakable, has made incredible promises to them. This was not normal. This is the one and only people he had made this sort of promises to. But herein lies a crucial issue that we need to notice, and that's readily apparent here in Exodus chapter 1. And we'll, we'll, read, we'll read more of that in just a moment. But what we're going to see is these people at this time are not only a people of promise, but they are, number three, a people seemingly forgotten. There are people who at one point, you know, they, they were the apple of God's eye and God loved them and chose them and is going to fulfill these promises through him through them but by all appearances God had left them out and this apple has rotten let's let's continue reading uh, in, in in Exodus uh, chapter 1 beginning in verse 6 
I'll put that up on the screen. There we go. Verse six, it says, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Okay, so we need to think about this for a second. God said he would make of Abraham a nation. And so now we see God's making them fruitful and multiplying and increasing them greatly. So, so how does that make them seem like a forgotten people? Continue reading there in verse 8. I put kind of a break up there. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too, too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set ta taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people, or another translation could be they, they, they had a distaste toward them. They hated them. So, verse 13 says, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So I hope you understand what happened there at the beginning. Joseph was, was Pharaoh's, you know, favorite guy. So both Joseph and his family, his, his people got favor. <laughs> they, they, they had great freedom in the land. They were welcomed. They were supported. They were well taken care of. But then Joseph died and that Pharaoh died and Joseph and what he had done for the people was forgotten. The people remained there and they, you know, continued to increase and multiply, but they were no longer welcomed. They, they became intruders, trespassers in the eyes of Pharaoh. Pharaoh even sees them kind of uh, as a threat. He says they, they might, you know, just join our enemies and then he kind of even says there uh, in verse 10, they might escape from the land. So he's got plans for these people. He, instead of helping them and caring for them, he wants to exploit them. And that's exactly what he does. He enslaves them. But he not only enslaves them, but it says they treated them ruthlessly. They oppressed them. I can just, uh, in my notes, I have uh, the words in bold, deal shrewdly with them, afflict them with heavy burdens, oppress them. Uh, they were treated ruthlessly. Again, they were, their lives were made bitter. That word bitter, I bet we've all been there. This, this your, your whole life being bitter, this is the idea of just a sourness, that there is nothing inside you but pain and hopelessness. I don't know if you remember in the book of Ruth, uh, at the beginning of the story there, um, Naomi 
is, is in a land, Midian. She's taken away from her people and her family, um, and her husband dies. Then her sons all die, so she is left alone as a woman in, in the ancient uh, East. And so what she does is she changes her name to Mara, bitter. That's the same word used here. Pharaoh made them hopeless. He made every moment of their life sour. They went to bed aching and in pain and miserable and woke up to start and do it all over again. And so this is the issue that comes before us. These are the people of promise. These are the apple of God's eye. Sure, they're multiplying, but they're, they're, they're stuck in a land. They're enslaved there, not allowed to, to leave. He said, lest they leave us, escape from the land. I mean, they're, they're in bondage there. And they're, they're, they don't be, seem to be blessed. God says, I will bless you. They, they don't seem to be blessed right now. And, and I mean, how on earth are they going to become a blessing to the rest of the world when they are so enslaved? By the way, you look at uh, Pharaoh's, I think I put it up here. The reason Pharaoh dealt shrewdly with them was lest they multiply. I mean, that's in direct opposition to God's promises. Hey, let's treat them so hard that they start dying off and thinning out and can't reproduce as, as quickly. That's his plan. And that's in direct opposition to God's promises. This, if it were me, it would make me feel entirely forgotten. By the way, again, these are so, such important things to know as we're reading this. We will learn later that their actual exodus, uh, at that point, they will have been in Egypt 430 years. We'll look once we get there to, you know, how we can date those 430 years. But elsewhere, even uh, in Genesis, it says that the people will be there, uh, will be afflicted for 400 years. That word, I mean, directly, they will be afflicted for 400 years. This isn't like they had a bad week. This isn't like they had a bad year. This isn't like they had a bad generation. This is generations that this is happening. They're being oppressed, afflicted, lives made bitter. Do you ever feel forgotten by God? Do you ever look at the world around you and say, it's just getting so bad. I mean, we could think specifically for us in America, things are getting so bad, certainly God has forgotten us. They're passing these laws that are allowing wickedness, Businesses are, are encouraging uh, lifestyles and things that are completely contrary to God's word. And even personally, though, we think about our own lives. I mean, surely you've gone through seasons where you say, I thought it was bad and then it got worse. And, and then something else happened and I just can't catch a break. My health, my relationships, my finances... I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I am the type of person who gets uh, into despair pretty quickly. Like I, I've got a pretty quick switch in me. Things can be, can be going great. 
my, my, my marriage, like things can be going awesome with my marriage and family, but I can have one bad day where the kids are going crazy and me and my wife might get into an argument and I'm just like, I don't think I can make it. <laughs> like, I just want to curl up in a ball. I'm very serious when I say this. This is just my personality. I come out of it, <laughs> but I go into it quick. Um, you know, I can preach one bad sermon and I'm just like, what am I doing? This is, I'm the worst ever. God has taken his gift off of me. You know, like that's just where I go. Um, and so I really do uh, have to fight feeling forgotten by God. I, I, I do have to fight hopelessness. Does life and its circumstances ever make you feel forgotten by God? Has life become bitter for you? Nothing but sourness. Well, that's exactly where the people of Israel are at this point. They've been there for a long time. What do we do when we feel forgotten by God, when we can't see him, when it doesn't seem like he's fulfilling his promises? How should we respond in those seasons? I think we at least get a little bit of an answer, something uh, that, that we can apply into our lives. Maybe we're in it right now that we can apply into our lives of how we can and should respond to these situations Exodus goes on, uh, beginning in verse 15, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Things have just gone from bad to worse. Once again, at first, Pharaoh is just trying to oppress them and put these burdens. And I would say even a succession of Pharaohs is probably in here. That, that's how we'll keep them down is by such hard oppression, by underfeeding them, underwatering them. You know, like that, that's what we'll do. But when that doesn't work, he now tries to secretly have the midwives kill the male children as they're being born. If you don't have boys, you can't reproduce. That slows down. Boys are generally the warriors, the stronger ones who could fight and get them freed. They already feel forgotten, but now their lives are being threatened. Persecution is at it an all-time high. But how will the midwives respond? And I would ask you again, thinking of the deep symbolism found in the book of Exodus, how would you respond? Well, let's see how they respond. We see verse in verse 17, but the midwives feared God. Now we need to remember the biblical usage of this word fear. It doesn't mean, that, mean they feared God in the sense that uh, they were afraid God would strike them dead. No, this is, this is talking about a reverent awe of God and respect and admiration of God above all other things and all other people. And so they're standing before the glorious king of Egypt 
but they choose to cling to the infinitely more glorious God of the universe, the king of the world. And so from that, I think we can draw our first principle. Cling to God even when you can't see him. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not there. Just because you don't recognize his work doesn't mean he isn't doing it. Just because it doesn't feel like he's in control doesn't mean he isn't. Cling to God even when you can't see him. We can't let, let go in those moments. We can't let go of our faith. We can't say, okay, I'm done with God. I'm just going to move on. I'm going to just hunker down, try to make it through life because God hasn't helped me. By the way, speaking of being in control, God had told Abraham in Exodus 15 that the people would be afflicted in Egypt for 400 years. It doesn't appear that that was in the Israelites' mind at this point, like counting down the days. But God knew what was going to happen here. He knew exactly how long they would be there. And he knows exactly how long you will be in the darkness. He knows exactly how long you'll be in those circumstances and trials. So cling to him even when you can't see him. Next, the text says there, uh, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Again, you have arguably the highest authority on earth at this time, the king of Egypt, giving them a command. They could have made so many excuses for why they had to do this terrible thing. But rather than obey this man, the most powerful man on earth, they continue to obey God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And from that, we can draw our second principle. In those times when we're just clinging to God and we can't see him, we also need to conform to God, not to circumstances. Again, I'm, I'm giving way too much personal information, but I am so bad about when someone else has a bad attitude, letting it... <laughs> make me have a bad attitude. I conform to my circumstances rather than conforming to God and the way he has told me to live and act. I let other people, let other circumstances direct my steps rather than God, but that's not how it should be. As we see by these women, I mean, their, their lives are at stake here. You can obey God in the darkness. You can Obey him, even when it seems most difficult and you can't even feel him or see him. These people did not conform. By the way, a helpful way, maybe this will come back up in your mind later. I think one of the worst sayings for a Christian is, if you can't beat them, join them. <clears throat> nope, we don't do that. Just because the world around you is dark does not mean you should become dark as well. The Bible says that we should be what? <laughs> Lights. That we should let our light so shine that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what we're supposed to do. And think about this practically, by the way. The world is telling us that we should 
encourage homosexuality, that we should celebrate transgenderism. The world is telling us it's unloving, it's hateful to say that you have an exclusive gospel, that your way is the only way to God. And the question is, are we going to conform to our circumstances, to our culture, to the people who seem like authorities that are telling us these things? Or are we going to conform to God and his standards? These are real things we're having to face now and will increasingly have to face. We can conform to God, not to our circumstances. But then I want to give us uh, one final thing, beginning in verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? He's outraged. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. (laughs) I'm not going to deal with that today for whether or not it was okay for them to lie in that situation. A lot of people have dealt with that, by the way. I think of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and all those who were opposing the Nazis. They had to deceive. They had to lie to protect the Jews, to protect um, these people. And they had to deal with this. Is, is this okay? I mean, but all we know is this. Verse 20, we'll keep going. So God dwelt, oh, I need to get one more slide. So God dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he, God, gave them families. <laughs> there are three blessings uh, that happen here. First, it says God dwelt well with the midwives. I mean, I would say so because they're alive. <laughs> they should be dead after, after doing this. A direct command from Pharaoh, yeah, the women are so vigorous that you don't get there. They, they should be dead. God dwelt, dealt well with them. I, many other ways, but I'm just saying, at the very least, God kept them alive. It says there again in the second half of verse 20, and the people, that's the nation of Israel, multiplied and grew very strong. Think about this. Pharaoh has contrived this plan to oppress the people, to thin down the people, to keep them from becoming a great nation, to oppose the promises of God. Yet in that process, the promise is continuing to be fulfilled. Why? Because these women conform to God, not to their circumstances. They were used by God to fulfill his plan. What an incredible honor. And by the way, here we stand some, I don't even know, 4,000 years later, and we're still talking about them. <laughs> what an honor. God bless these women. And then finally, it says there, verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. That may seem like an odd blessing, but It's most likely, I I get from the context that the reason these ladies were midwives is because they didn't have families. Talk to a midwife sometime. Ask them how easy it is to have a family or would be to have a family. I mean, as a midwife, you are on call 24-7. Statistically, when are most children born? At night. So you get almost no sleep, and then you wake up the next day and do it all over again. I mean... Families would be very difficult. But here it says, God gave them families. And you can kind of just 
to understand and feel their maternal love that they already have. They're, they're already delivering babies, already dealing with babies all the time. And they, they love children. They love life. They, they fear God, but they also love these children and didn't want them to die. And they have this maternal love. And now God is fulfilling that in a special way. He's blessed them. And from that, I want to draw our, our final uh, application here, our final principle, our pattern we can learn here. Trust that God will reward you. Trust that God will reward you. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying you obey God and, and you all of a sudden get a check in the mail and become uh, rich. I'm not saying all of a sudden your life and your relationships and your job will get easy. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying God will miraculously heal you. Now, God can do all those things. But it may not be an immediate blessing that happens. This doesn't tell us how long it was until they had families. It may have been 10 years later. They may not have even connected the dots, but God blessed them. You will be blessed. And by the way, whether or not it happens in this life, you can know for certain that you will be blessed for eternity. Unfading, unfailing blessings stored up in heaven to be enjoyed in the presence of God. This is good. This is good news because I think some of us feel forgotten by God. But we can look at the book of Exodus. There are people of promise, but there are people seemingly forgotten. But just there, right there at the end of, of chapter 1, we see this glimmer, this glimmer of hope. That though things are getting more evil, Pharaoh is oppressing them even harder, God is showing up. And these women are faithful. These women are obedient and these women are rewarded. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I would say here in a moment, we're about to do this uh, communion ceremony, but maybe you can give God your despair and say, God, I'm not going to let go of you just because I can't see you. I'm not going to stop following you just because I can't feel you. I'm not going to stop obeying you just because everyone around me isn't obeying you. And, and you can do that now. Again, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you need to cling to him for the very first time by trusting in Christ Jesus. But for those of you who have trusted in Christ and you're walking in faithfulness with him, right now we're going to have these communion cups up here. And you can take some time in your seat. It'll just be silent in here. You can take some time in your seat to pray. I'll give you uh, about three minutes. You, you can pray and then come up and grab one of these uh, cups when you're ready. And then we'll all partake together. So let's pray to God now. I'll, I'll begin you into a prayer. Father God, thank you so much for the book of Exodus. Thank you for getting us ready for this journey today, teaching us from your word, how to read your word. It's history, but it has meaning for us today. And God, thank you for showing us, even in this first chapter, that we can have hope. No matter our circumstances, you've given us promises and you will fulfill those promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing could ever separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, but for the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, we thank you for these promises. We cling to them. We want to obey you. We want to make your name known. Would you do this through us today? You guys can continue praying, then grab your 
cup when you're ready. Okay. This idea of, of even God using symbols flows right to what we are about to do. We are not merely eating a piece of bread and drinking a little thimble of juice. These symbolize the most important reality in the world. And that is Christ's broken body for us. His shed blood, the blood of the new covenant, the, the greater promises of God. And so if you would go ahead and open the, the top one. I'll pray and then we'll partake of this one together. God, we thank you that Christ really did come into this world. God, the son, walked away from his place of prestige and became a servant for our sake. Not only a servant, but a suffering one who would bear the beatings we deserve. God, we thank you for that. And we remember it even as we partake of it now. You can go ahead and you can go ahead and open your juice there. Again, this represents the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. I'll pray and we can partake of this. Father God, as we think of this symbol. It's heart-wrenching to think of the blood of Christ being poured out for our sake. 
but God is also the most encouraging thing because it shows us that you have not and you will never forget us. You have given us your son. You've signed the covenant with his blood and you will keep all your promises. Lord, we take this in great thanks. You can go ahead and partake. Well, you guys can go ahead and stand. And Pastor Dave is going to lead us in a closing song of, of celebration.